Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, a queer history podcast. My name is Alice. I'm Irene. I'm Eli. Hamish isn't here, but I would like to thank him for recording me the sound file of all the French words I'm about to mangle, because that's my fault and not his. Each fortnight, one of us will talk about a person, a place, or a topic in queer history from around the world and throughout time. This week, I'll be talking to you about Julie Daubigny, a bisexual French opera singer and duelist from the 17th century. Just a couple of content warnings before we begin the episode. There will be mentions of violence, murder, and self-harm, as well as underage marriage and sex with minors. So if any of that sounds like something you don't want to hear, we'll have plenty of other episodes and they'll all have a wide variety of different content. Before we begin, I'd just like to include a quick mention that we had some issues with sound quality when we started recording this episode. So the first 10 minutes are worse quality than our previous episode and than the rest of the episode. It picks up after 10 minutes. We're sorry about that. So you've probably heard of Julie because she's on the internet a bunch as everyone just being like, yes, she's like a super badass opera singer who gets in a lot of jewels and like kills people and is also queer and people are quite keen on her. Why do all our queer people kill people? Yeah, she is very much a criminal. Two of our first three are going to be criminals. She is going to kill people. So what we basically taught people is queer people commit murders. I've never done that literally once. Same. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Good. I looked her up on Tumblr when I was doing this, and it was like, tags, Julie Daubigny, suggested tags, hashtag goals. (laughs) Her name, for the record, I'm just going to do this at the start, may not actually be Julie. In that we actually just don't know for sure what her first name was. Where did we get this name then? So we have a letter from one of her partners where he calls her Julia. Mm-hmm. We have a letter from another of her partners where he calls her Emily. Right. We have a bunch of cast lists of operas she was in where she's called Julie Emily, which is probably her name, I'm guessing. Okay. And then there's a novel about her where she's just called Madeline. <laughs> <laughs> no, just by like That was a relatively cohesive picture until Madeline. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's like a fictionalised version of her life that was written like a hundred years after her death. Oh, okay, so we can just ignore that one. So he may have just made this up. So her name is probably Julie Emily, but we'll go with Julie because my French pronunciation is not up to repeatedly pronouncing that. (laughs) She's born in Paris in either 1670 or 1673, depending on what source you're reading. That's potentially quite a gap in ages. Yes. Like if we're talking about significant things, she does in her teens, but... Yeah, we're going to talk oh, that quite a bit. about a bunch of stuff she does in her teens. Okay, this will be interesting. So that is a bit weird. Cause How do we know she wasn't born in either of the two years in the middle? Because we have one source that says 1670 and one that says 1673. Maybe she was just baptised really late? I had a lot of trouble finding primary sources, probably just because they're all in French, mm-hmm. which we're going to face continuously with any language that we don't speak. Yeah. So it may be that she was born in 1670 and baptised in 1673, and that led to confusion. But yeah, her age is... Pretty unclear for most of this story, but she is about to do a bunch of stuff in her teens, so we're going to have to deal with this fact. Okay. So, yes, she's born in Paris. The king at the time of France is Louis XIV, who's the Sun King. So there was feudalism in France. Yes. And Louis was the king, and he was trying to make it more like, I am just in charge of everything, rather than like, these people have sworn fealty to me, and I've sworn fealty to these people. So he was basically trying to institute more the divine right of kings and be an absolute monarch. So he was trying to codify all the things that happened in court mm-hmm. to make it harder for aristocrats to rise up through the court easily or to oppose his power. They made all the dances really like codified. and So that it was really hard to do them right if you weren't meant to be there. Yeah, exactly. Ah. But yeah, that was generally a thing that was happening with court etiquette in that time. One of her biographers, who 
was writing in the 1920s talks about this period of history. Mm-hmm. And he basically talks about it as being incredibly immoral and everyone's like flouting all these conventions that the king is trying to put in place. He says, Noblemen who sought to obscure convention and the edicts of fashion seemed gaily against nature, while their ladies recreated in their boudoirs the boscage of Lesbos. What's a boscage? No. Okay, but anyway, Lesbos is the key word. Yeah. Okay. I would double Was check it? that, but. Because there was a very long time when referring to women being old lesbos just meant that they were, like, immoral and sexually free, and not necessarily with women. This is written in the 20s. Alright, I don't know how long the other one's stuck around. Yeah, I don't know exactly. But it does happen quite often that people would be like, aha! Lesbians. And then it's like, no, friend. Because at first it was meant to, like, hint, hint, and this isn't, like... So like a bit before this time, that a woman would be down to give head. Oh, okay. To a man specifically. Okay. Given that most of her biographers, as we will get to, acknowledge that she was interested in women. Yeah. yeah. So if he's putting that as a biography, he probably is talking about lesbians. So her dad is the secretary to the master of horse for the king, who is Louis the Fourteenth. So he's training young men in all the things you need to know in order to like rise up through the court. Academic things like. They learn history and grammar and all that stuff. And also they learn, like, riding horses and fencing. Yep. There's no mentions of her mother that I can find. And That's quite common. Yeah, maybe her mother was just there and nobody cared. Yeah. But she was a woman, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, sexism, not unfortunately, she was a woman. <laughs> yeah. But it sort of comes across like her father was kind of like, oh, I have this child to raise. I'm supposed to teach all these young men how to like fence and stuff. I guess that's what you do with a child. I mean, it might be that the mother died. Yeah, maybe the mother died. Maybe the mother was present and the father was still just like, look, this is what's happening. Go and learn these skills. This is a good way for you to get an education. Mm. I'm not really clear. So she learns all those things like fencing and horse riding and generally things that are supposed to be masculine things. And then when she's 14... She starts an affair with her father's boss. So is she either 14 or 17 here? Or Um, is she 14 or 11? No, not 14 or 11. Good, just checking. I haven't got a year written down, but I feel like I would have remembered if it was 14 or 11. Okay. Okay, so she's 14 or 17. She's in, like... Her father's boss. Her father's boss is the master of horse for the king. Oh, okay, right. And he is in his 40s. Okay. He's married with 14 children. (gasps) Wow, that's... Several children. That's several children. But they have an affair, and he, like, gets her an introduction into court. And this, okay. like, general actually just works out pretty well for her. And seems like... So is this calculated on her part to get something? Or... I don't know. Like, it sounds kind of like it is. It sounds way more fine than 14-year-old and her father's boss could be. So maybe, but I don't know. I mean, she could be 17, which is not... Good either. <laughs> but it is, is better. I don't uh, think she is 17. Okay. It's just, there's just such a difference. Yeah. When I was 14, I was a child. When I was 17, I was just an adult with no life experience. That's quite accurate, yeah. I'm yeah. an adult with no life experience. I mean, I'm, I'm still an adult with no life experience. <laughs> so she has an affair with her father's boss. But eventually, her father's boss and her father decide to marry her off to, okay. to this man who's called Maupin. So she's often called La Maupin for the rest of her life. The reason they marry her off is possibly just to make it easier for her to continue the affair. Oh, okay. To be like, yep, look, here's your respectable husband. So one of her biographers, Rogers, describes the husband as a young man of impeccable but colourless character. Okay. So they're like, yeah, he's really respectable and now you're married to him. Now you can kind of get away with what you want. 
So the kind of husband that, like, every woman in history who doesn't want to stay in the mold wants. Yeah. If she must have one. Yeah, exactly. She gets the kind of husband that she wants. And then he gets a position in, like, administration, governance kind of stuff. In the south of France and leaves Paris. So does her father know about this affair that she's having with his boss? It seems to be quite in the open. Like, potentially, yes. Okay. Okay. I'm going with she's not 14. She may not be 14. I don't know. Like, her father is obviously agreed to the marriage. Whether he negotiated with his boss to make the affair respectable, or whether he just didn't know that was happening, and his boss was like, this would be a great idea. Marry her to this guy. And he was like, cool, let's do that. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So her husband leaves, and she... She stayed. She's about to have a great time. Yeah. Yeah. So they got married. The marriage didn't work out. Like, from the start, her husband was like, I cannot deal with this woman. And then several of the sources say that she has him sent to the south of France. I don't know how she's supposed to achieve this. They don't specify this. Like, she she made this happen. She probably just told him to very firmly. Yes. (laughs) Found himself doing it. And he just did it. Yep. I think there is one quote that's literally like, he was bundled into a carriage and never seen off again. (laughs) (laughs) Like, literally, she was just like, can you leave? And he was like, okay, okay. This was a bit too intense for me. And then he just goes. So he's gone to the south of France. And so she gets a new boyfriend. The father's boss is still kind of around, but I don't know what's happened to that relationship. So she gets a new boyfriend, and he's called Seran. And I'm never going to pronounce his name again. So he is a fencing master. Excellent. Yes. And so he teaches her to fence some more, but she quickly surpasses him. And then <laughs> they just like hang out together and like fence at the places where you hang out and fence in Paris. And it's pretty rad. But then he comes home one day and is like, look, I got into a duel and I killed a man and now I'm on the run from the law. So we're kind of screwed. What was the situation with duels in France at this time in terms of the legality thereof? They were illegal. Okay, well, that settles that then. But they could not successfully enforce that law. It's the kind of thing where I'm always confused. Like in some places where duels are less illegal than someone dying as a result of a duel becomes, like, confusing. But if the duel is illegal, then the murder is a murder. Yeah, cool. yeah. Louis XIV's father, yeah. who was Louis XIII, banned okay. dueling in, like, the 1620s. Okay. And Louis XIV, when he came in, tried to, like, crack down on it even more. But he just couldn't do it because there were, like, tens of thousands of duels happening. In, like, the 30 years around the year 1700, there were 10,000 duels fought by French officers in France. So that's just in the military, not even like, the rest of the people. That is a large number of duels. It's, like, 10 a day. The French needed to chill. But only about 400 people died, so generally it was probably just, like, dueling to first blood or, like, Mm -hmm. we've both turned up and been like, yes, we've retained our honour, it's fine. And the police after him. Mm -hmm. So this man, he, like, invented the police in France. Okay. And he's he's very intense about enforcing the law, and he's, like, the head of the police, and this is the guy that's trying to arrest him. Like, this is a big deal. This is not, like, a small thing where he's like, yeah, I think, like, a local cop saw me do this thing. Anyway, the cop, whose name is Lorraine, is after him. So they flee Paris together, and they're going to Marseille, to, like, Mm -hmm. the other side of France. And her boyfriend's like, this is cool, I've got this, I've got enough money to, like, support us on the road. We'll get to Marseille, it'll all be fine. And they get to the first inn, like, on their first night. And she's like, cool, so all that money you have to support us. And he's like, yeah, no, I just lied. I don't have any money. Oops. Did he have a plan for this? Was he hoping to turn to highway robbery? He needed to flee the city or he would be arrested for But murder. he didn't have to take her. Even he wanted to. Mm. There's a description of her which talks about how she has, like, purple eyes and, like, attractive, like, a character in a bad novel. 
Okay. I mean, she probably didn't really look like that, but her biographers like to say she was attractive like a character in a bad novel. So they have no money and they've got to this inn where they need to save the night. And she's like, okay, don't worry, I've got this. Like, we're really good at fencing. We'll just put on fencing demonstrations and it'll be great. And they put on fencing demonstrations and everyone's super impressed and they can, like, successfully fund their journey. It's pretty bold of them to be on the run because <laughs> someone, one of them killed someone in a fencing duel and to be financing the fleeing with fencing. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's what they're doing here. <laughs> but everyone's super impressed with him and it's great. So while this is happening, once she leaves Paris, she starts dressing as a man. Possibly it's for safety because they're on the run from the police and also because they're just on the road in the countryside. Yeah. And, like, that's generally more safe. Several of her biographers say things like, she was born with masculine inclinations, is one quote, and there was another similar one. They used that kind of wording. Okay. All these biographers that I found, for the record, were writing before about 1930. Okay. They're mostly in, like, the 1800s and very early 1900s. Okay, so don't trust them. So, like, don't trust them. This is more like, this is what people have thought about her than here is a fact about her. All right. So is there a, like, recent authoritative biography with research? There... Even, like, just in French, or is she... There are several people who are, like, working on them at the moment. Oh, okay. But I don't think there are any what published. Are in English? Yeah. There are modern interpretations that have said she was a trans man. Okay. But those things that I've read are generally people just talking on the internet. Yeah. Rather than... Is there going to be more added to that as we go along, or do we have all the information now? There's going to be more added in terms of her having relationships with other women. Okay, maybe we discuss that at the end. Yeah, I think that affects how people see it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, generally it appears from the sources that I was able to find in English that she wasn't most of the time dressed as a man and passing as a man. She was basically being like, yeah, I'm a woman in men's clothing because this is more convenient right now. Mm -hmm. So Um, that would mean it wasn't a safety thing then. It would be a, like, ease of travel thing. Yeah, an ease of travel thing, yeah. So when they're doing the fencing demonstrations... She's wearing men's clothing? She's wearing men's clothing, and there is one story where she's in the middle of a fencing demonstration and one of the people watching her basically says, this can't possibly be a woman, she's too good, this isn't, like, a woman dressed in men's clothing, this is a man trying to pass as a woman dressed in men's clothing. (laughs) To make, like, a more impressive fencing show by being like, look at what this woman can do. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that's a very elaborate lie to justify (laughs) your sexism. (laughs) But I guess there was kind of reasoning happening there. There was kind of reasoning. Yeah, so he's heckling her from the crowd and she's just like, well, stuff you, and rips her shirt open. It's like, I am very much a woman. Well, okay, that sounds fake. Yeah. That does sound fake. All these stories are in the sounds fake category. All right. True. Yeah, there's very little in the way of primary sources, so a lot of this is much more like, here's a story that could have happened. She definitely existed. Uh She definitely was in opera, because we have cast lists from the time. Uh But all the stories are like, people have said this about her. Okay. Because they're not the sort of thing that you can find any, like, solid evidence for. Nobody went home from the inn and was like, dear diary, today I saw a fencing demonstration. She ripped off her she shirt. She ripped off her shirt. She had breasts and was mad ripped. <laughs> Topless fencing. It was great. If I just, like, went down the local pub and then there was this ripped, beautiful, purple-eyed <laughs> fencing, fencing woman, woman. <laughs> who ripped her shirt off. I have not written in this diary since I was 13, but... <laughs> Some things must be recorded. <laughs> yep. Yeah, unfortunately there are no good accessible primary sources. Yeah. So it's probably fake. She probably did not rip her shirt open and do a topless fencing demonstration. Welcome to Queer as Fiction. (laughs) I did think this as I was researching this. I was like, there's no way I can definitively say that. Yeah, as long as we make that clear, which we are doing right now. A lot of this occurred. Yeah. Yeah. 
it was mentioned that her being trained as offensive by her father yeah. and whatnot was just sort of because of circumstance, not because that was mm-hmm. what was expected for a girl. Yeah. Of her position, etc. Were there other female fences? Is there like an existing tradition of women fences in this time wearing certain things? Yes, of there were other female fences in this. Like it was unusual, but it wasn't like totally unheard of. She okay. wasn't like a one-off. Yeah. And there were women wearing trousers and fencing, and there okay. were also women wearing dresses and fencing. Okay. All right. Yeah. And there were like other women who were jeweling and doing all those kinds of things, oh, yeah. which is generally written about as being like. This is a reflection on the moral collapse of our society mm. and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But what's happening? Okay. We can't necessarily read much into that then about her gender presentation, I guess. It's more a convenience fencing thing. Yeah, no, I would say that her dressing in pants rather than a dress is more of a convenience thing than a gender thing. Her biographers do talk about her having masculine inclinations, and when we get to the part where she falls in love with women, they will blame that on the fact that she's been dressing as a man. Okay. Uh-uh. So when they talk about her having masculine inclinations, is mm-hmm. that just she dresses in men's clothing, or do that, they talk about more things? That's she dresses in men's clothing. She does traditionally male activities, and she is interested in women. Oh, okay. So, yeah. The trifecta. <laughs> the trifecta. <laughs> so they get to Marseille. Having successfully funded their journey, they've escaped from the police. They turn up and they enroll in a music academy there. So, okay. (laughs) So, they're still in France. They're still in France. Is this just not jurisdiction anymore? They've just gotten away with it or what? They've, for the moment, they've gotten away with it. It will come back because they've traveled far. It's the 1600s, the communication's bad. All right, cool. So, they enroll in a music school. They enroll in a music school. Cool. And they both get jobs with the opera in Marseille. Were they already good at this? <laughs> or is the opera in Marseille just the really op- uncompetitive? The opera in Marseille has just begun. <laughs> okay, so okay. they'll take literally anyone. And I could join the opera in Marseille. <laughs> she has no musical training, and they do mention, like, she has no musical training, she can't read music, but she has a really good voice. Does yeah. she have a really good voice, or is this like the biographers talking about her purple eyes? She continues to perform in operas factually throughout her life and be very successful. Okay, so she must actually be pretty good. She can sing. This part is true. Okay. She can sing and she is in the opera in Marseille. So most of the lead roles for women in opera are for sopranos, and she is not a soprano. Does she do pants roles? She doesn't do pants roles. Oh. People talk about her doing pants roles, but there's no cast lists that mention her in pants roles. They just feel like she ought to because they've seen her in trousers before. Yeah, they've seen her in trousers and she has a low voice, so they've decided she should do pants roles, but she's like an alto. Okay. And they write a bunch of lead female roles for a lower voice for her. Oh, okay. So she's actually like quite successful in opera and like they accommodate her because she's that good. Okay. So yeah, her and her boyfriend joined the opera in Marseille and that's all pretty great. They break up eventually. So this is the quote I was going to read you when we're talking about the things she does that make them say she's a masculine and things. Unfortunately, the Maupin was endowed with a dual personality and held very definite views concerning male and female beauty. One day she decided she was sick of men in general and of Serran in particular. What a piquant contrast it would be if a virile woman like herself were to show herself about town in company with some blonde-tressed maiden. How it would show up her dark, huge charms? Okay, there's some conversation that we just had here. Yes. When you said dark, huge charms, I thought it was just going to be that she was brunette, and she was like, women are blonde, we would contrast so well. Yes, <laughs> a girlfriend now. She's gone, yeah. I'm quite dark. Good aesthetic contrast. I'm going to have a blonde girlfriend. That's basically what this quote is saying. Yeah. She wants a girlfriend for the aesthetic. All right. I feel as if this maybe wasn't entirely accurate. <laughs> this biography is not accurate. 
None of her biographies are accurate. This one is, is written in the 30s, and it's very much just like, a, here's a fun story. Oh, okay, biography. that's interesting. Because I was going to yeah. ask when it was written, given yeah. what was the bit about her having a dual nature? Yeah. She yeah. was endowed with a dual personality, which I think is she was bi. It sounds a lot more like it was about gender here, I think. I know it was in the late 19th century. I'm not sure when it survived. A lot of the rhetoric about like same-sex attracted people was in a kind of envisioning them as almost intersex and that like mm. like a queer woman was a woman who had a male soul or whatever and they'd be called like oh, yeah. things like that. You'd see mentions mm. of them being dual natured and things. That and makes that sense. just meant they gay. Yeah, that makes sense because that is how this one yeah. who's Gilbert who wrote about her in the 30s and Rogers who wrote about her in the 20s both talk about her. I mean, it yep. is like a common thing when talking about trans or gender non-conforming people in like a little bit before that time and maybe at that time as well because of, like, obvious reasons. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. But, yeah, so she has a dual personality and she wants a girlfriend for the aesthetic. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so what, they can contrast. What if she meets, like, a nice, like, brunette lady or a red-headed lady? Red-headed would still contrast, I think, right. but she can't meet a brunette lady. That's okay, she's about to meet a nice blonde lady. Okay, wow, spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> so she's on stage and there's this girl who comes to the opera, like, really often and her family has a box mm-hmm. and they lock eyes from the audience and okay. fall in love. <laughs> this part is also, like, at least partly true. Not the, like, they lock eyes in the theatre and fall in love, but, like, this section of the story, there are primary sources. Okay. So What are they? The letters from somebody who was around at the time. Oh, okay. Not, like, directly involved, but around at the time. It's writing, like, hey, here's an interesting thing that happened. This opera singer is very gay. Is that what they wrote? No, this story's going to get weirder. Oh, excellent. Continue. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not just like this opera singer was super gay. So they see each other in the theatre and Julie's like, yes, this will contrast me perfectly. We need to date. <laughs> <laughs> and so they meet up and they're like, yeah, we're going to like go to this friend's place and meet up again later on and have like tryst and it's going to be great. Unfortunately, we don't know her name, which is Gonna make this part annoying. I don't know what this girl is called. But whatever her name is, she's like, yep, we're gonna meet up and have a secret tryst and it's gonna be great. And then her parents find out and are like, no, you're not. No, you're really, really not. And they send her away to a convent. Oh, what? Oh, okay. Have they had any trysts yet? From the way the story is told, no, I don't think so. Okay. They've so, spoken. They've had, like, one conversation. And they were like, nah, you're going to a convent now. So they sent I her hope away. that the blonde lady found a girlfriend at the convent. Mm. And it's it was okay, like... because... Oh, okay. Never mind. I'll just stop. <laughs> hey, I'm going to let you go on. <laughs> so Julie finds out she's gone to the convent, and Julie turns up at the convent. Mm-hmm. And is like, hello, yes, I'm a poor orphan. Please take me in. I just need somewhere to be sheltered in this convent. And the mother superior is like, yes, this is a tragic story. Please come in and, like, stay in our convent for a while. It'll be fine. She claimed that her uncle was eventually going to, like, turn up and take her in, but she needed somewhere to stay in the meantime. And her girlfriend is a novice at the convent now. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So it's all good. So they're in this convent, having a great time, under the noses of all these nuns. And eventually the girlfriend is like, look, this store isn't sustainable. Like, your uncle doesn't exist, and I'm going to become a nun. We kind of need to do something here. What was the plan? And Julie's like, yeah, there was no plan. This is as far as I got. We're just going to come to the convent and then we were going to have a bunch of lesbian sex in a convent. That's it. That's all I've got. The girlfriend's like, okay, fine, I've got this. We'll escape from the convent. You just need to, like, get two horses and get everything we'll need for the journey and be, like, outside my window at this spot this time and I'll get everything together and it'll be fine. And Julie's like, cool, okay. And so one of the nuns in the convent has just died. Mm-hmm. 
but her grave isn't sealed up yet. So her girlfriend's like, okay, we're going to dig up this grave. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So they go and they dig up the dead nun. And they take her to the girlfriend's room and they put her in the girlfriend's bed. Oh my god. <laughs> so they hadn't yet invented the thing where you just like make the put pillows your pillow, into yeah. the shape of a person. They had to find a corpse. <laughs> yes. No, th- there's more to this. There's a reason there's a corpse. Okay. I was going to say, imagine if all of those like teen movies where the girl sneaks out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to yeah. go to prom. Drive to the cemetery. <laughs> anyway. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So they put the body in the bed, <laughs> and then they climb out the window, mm-hmm. and the horse is waiting, and then as they're going, they light the convo on fire, and right away. So that when the nuns who get out of the fire and escape find the body in the bed the next morning, they're like, oh, that's so tragic, that novice died in the fire, and no one will ever look for them. Did nuns die in this fire? I don't think nuns die in the fire, because she is tried for this crime, and she's not tried for murder. Oh, okay. She's well, tried for arson, but not murder. Cool. So I don't think nuns do die. I mean, I think you may only get tried for arson when you do an arson and people die. No, you do. Even now, if you like light a bushfire, you get charged with the number of deaths in the bushfire oh, do you really? and arson. Because that's what I was thinking. I knew that the people oh, who okay. do that get charged with arson. but no, I didn't... They also get charged okay. with like a bunch of counts of manslaughter. Okay. Anyway. That would be about right, yeah. But yeah, no, she only gets charged with arson and body snatching and kidnapping. Okay, so she, she doesn't was, get charged with murder. So she was just willing to risk killing a lot of nuns. She was just re- willing to risk killing nuns. Who had, like, taken in her girlfriend out of the kindness of her heart and shot her. And taken her in as well. What if the All nuns right. had gone to her girlfriend's room before the fire got out of hand to wake her up and take her out and found the corpse of this other nun who died, like, three days before? Oh, my God. They're just there in fire, and there is, like, a nun returned from the grave. (laughs) They would have been like, it's a vision, and it would have become, like, a thing, and they could have had pilgrims come and, like, made some money. It would have been great. Okay. I feel like you're trying to spin this out. Marketing opportunity. Okay, look, this wasn't a moral act. They lit a convent on fire. That's how it happened. My guy only, like, shot at some people and maybe rubbed a bank. Okay, fine. My girl lit a convent on fire. But her girlfriend planned it. It wasn't her. (laughs) Her girlfriend made her do it. The primary source that I was talking about is this woman who was kind of like a journalist sort of person at the time. And she wrote this letter about the situation after the whole thing went down. And she absolutely, like, blames it on the girlfriend. She's like, the girlfriend came up with this plan and told her to do these things. All right. And, yeah. I'm not trying to, like, actually justify her. I just wanted to say, like... Alice hates nuns. You heard it here first, guys. (laughs) I don't hate nuns. My aunt is a nun. Is she going to listen to this? Maybe. So, they escape from the convent. People think they're dead. It's fine. Weirdly, they only stole one body. I don't know what they think has happened to Julie. Like, they think her girlfriend's died in the fire. Anyway, but that's fine. They escape. And so for three months, they just, like, hang out together, and it's great, and they have a lovely time, I guess. Where are they? I don't know. Are they, like, in, like, civilization, though, or are they, like, in the woods? I don't know. Oh, okay. Basically, all the sources just say after three months, the girlfriend returns to her family. Okay. Well, choose your own adventure. So you can decide if they just hang out being lesbians in the woods. Or if they, like, go to the beach. live somewhere. Comment below. <laughs> After you'd killed some nuns, what would you do with your girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so after three months, the girlfriend goes home to her family. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing comes out. Yeah. And How old is this girl? 
The girlfriend. Yeah, the girlfriend, the blonde lady. We don't know, but it sounds like she's quite young. Like, Julie is still like 17. What? <laughs> <laughs> so it's in the last like max three years of her life. <laughs> she's got a lot of stuff done. Alright. Yeah. So, okay. She's How long was she an opera singer for before she did this? Not long. And yet they wrote several like roles specifically tailor-made for her? No, she's going to like return to opera career okay. a bunch of times. That okay. wasn't her whole opera career. All right. She has an ongoing opera career. Okay. When she's not doing weird things. When she's not doing crime and killing nuns. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, she's still like under 20 at this time. Okay. All right. And the girl is probably... Around okay. the same age. Around the same age. Right. We don't know. But no one mentions there being, like, a major age difference. Okay. So she's not, like, way older or way younger. Yeah, so she goes on trial for arson and for kidnapping and for body snatching. But they don't actually catch her, and she's tried as a man in absentia. As a man? As a man. Why as a man? Because the story is that she... She's a man dressed as a woman? She was a man passing as a woman in a convent in order to have this relationship. But they know she's an opera singer. They do know she's an opera singer. They're just in really deep denial about lesbianism. Okay. Is what's happening here. Like, this woman who I mentioned before, who was the journalist who wrote mm. about how the girlfriend planned the thing, writes this whole letter where she's like, yeah, so this man broke into this convent and did this thing. And then she just has this whole life that is just totally made up where she's like, and after that, the relationship broke down and the man went off and got married to this other woman and they had three children. And, like, they're in just super deep denial about the lesbianism. So it's definitely Julia they're talking about. There wasn't just, like... A, a man. different convent a different that man. burned down. Maybe somebody else did the same thing. But, like, she's... No. Yeah, no, it is her they're talking about. Okay. And they just won't accept at the time that there were lesbian nuns. And they'd rather just be like, yeah, this was a man who was just living in a convent as a woman. So, yeah, this guy who was writing in, like, the mid-1800s accepts that it's a queer romance. Most of her biographers accept that... They are both women, obviously, because they're writing her biography. And I'm like, yeah, this was a lesbian relationship. And they talk about it as, like, her being in love with the other woman and all these things. But they do also sort of say that first she started dressing as a man when she was travelling to Marseille. And then she was like, hey, women are interested in me when I'm dressing as a man. This is great. More as an entertainment thing. Like, she's like, hey, this is really entertaining how women are really into me. I could, like, play this up. Then she was genuinely interested in the women. Okay. Does but she... they still said she was in love with the other girl? Yes. So they start out going sort of, she was dressed so... as a man and women found her attractive and she was like, hey, this is pretty great. And then they sort of say it got out of hand and she really fell for someone. Yeah. She no longer knew. We had to draw the line of like, oh, women are in love with me and I feel flattered and this is fun. I'm pretending to be a man to ending up falling in love with those women. To be honest, this sounds like the plot of a romance novel. It's like, who will steal hot Playboy Julie's heart? <laughs> well, the non stole hot Playboy Julie's yeah. heart. But, like, 12 other people are going to steal hot Playboy Julie's heart. Okay, carry on. But, yeah, so there's a bunch of sources that also will accept that she was a woman, but won't accept that the girlfriend knew she was a woman. Oh, okay. Which, obviously, like, discounts the bit where they met at the theatre, but I don't think that's super important. And also discounts all the lesbian sex you talked about. Well, there's plenty of women who dress as men and pass as men and have, like, wives and things. Yeah. And, like, some of them are probably like, I didn't know. No, sir, not at all. But yeah. some of them... Like, sex ed was bad. 
Yeah, some of them genuinely didn't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like, it may be true that... It's possible. It's possible. There's precedent for it. Yeah, it has happened. I don't know how plausible it is. But yeah, I think it basically generally comes down to they'd much rather be like a man dressed as a woman or a woman dressed as a man and was mistaken for a man than accept that lesbians existed. There's one person who's called Monde who writes about her in relation to the fictionalised version of her life, which is called Madeline. This is in the 19th century. He basically says men feel really threatened by this idea because women who are able to dress as men and pass as men and do all these masculine things are no less men, but they're far more pretty. (laughs) So men feel super threatened. And it's all just a bit weird. Right. Yeah. So that's the situation there. So she goes on trial. They convict her to death by fire because it was awesome. They're just like, you burnt something down, we're going to burn you down. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Yep. I... This is the blonde lady? Sorry, no. So, Julie. Julie. The blonde lady goes home to her family and that's it for her. Which is like, sending me to a comment didn't work, did it? You better do what I say. (laughs) I don't know. We never hear her again. But Julie goes on trial. She's convicted to death by fire. And she, for some reason, decides to go back to Paris. Face her other crime instead. Face her other crime instead. I don't really know. Okay. On the way, she meets a man named Marichal, who was a well-known actor in Paris, but is now an alcoholic. And it's just kind of traveling around and stuff. She meets him and he's like, you know, you could be a great actress and a great singer. And he gives her a bunch of training to help her up her career. It sounds super fake. It, it does. It really fake. does. She's on her way back to Paris and she's still doing fencing demonstrations, even though she's on the run from two separate crimes. Like, so with the first crime, her then boyfriend killed a guy. Yeah. Is she yes. like an accessory illegally now or does she actually not have anything to worry about? I think she or? actually doesn't have anything to worry about from the first crime. Yeah, no, but she's on the run from the second crime. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like nuns are dead, Alice. Nuns <laughs> <laughs> not dead, oh my god. Nuns may dead. have smoke inhalation damage. <laughs> yes. and... Okay, so she's on the run from one crime. She's travelling back to Paris, and she's still doing her fencing demonstrations. And so one day she's in an inn doing her fencing demonstration, and this guy watching is heckling her and being like, oh, so you're a woman, like, take up We've your clothes. We've heard this story We've heard before. you do this. And she's like, no, and she challenges him to a duel. <laughs> okay, sure. They go outside, she runs him through with her sword. Wow, yeah. okay. And then she just leaves. And his friends like have to carry him back inside and like nurse his wounds. And the next day she's like, I'm feeling slightly bad about this. Maybe that was an overreaction to a heckler. And she goes to the barber because he's the surgeon at the time, because it's the 1600s. <sighs> and yep. she's like, so I stabbed a guy yesterday, like... Did you patch him up? Do you know who that was? Like, I'm feeling pretty bad about this. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's the son of this duke. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> Done goofed, Julie. <laughs> so his name's Delbert. Okay. And she's like, oh, no, I'm going to go and apologize to this guy. Is that spelled like Delbert? Delbert, yeah. Okay. De apostrophe Albert. Oh, okay. Carry on. His name's Delbert. His name's Louis-Joseph Delbert, if you want to call him Louis. But, yeah. like, a bunch of people are called Louis, so don't call him Louis. There's okay. another Louis coming up later. All right. Jesus. It's France. This is how it is. So, she stabbed the Duke's son. And she's like, I need to go and apologize. I'm feeling bad and I'm like slightly worried about this whole situation. So, she puts on her dramatic cloak and her dramatic hat because of who she is as a person. And goes into his room where he's lying in his bed. And he's like, who are you? What's happening? And she dramatically whips off her cloak and is like, it's me! And he's like, okay, hello. Yes, good, you're very attractive. And then they date. <laughs> what? Does he remember that she was the one who stabbed yeah, him it. yesterday? He knows it's her. 
Okay. And he looks at her, and he's like, well, I'm quite into this, actually. I mean, okay. And then they date. Yep. Cool. There is an alternative version of this story. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which Does I'm it... also going to tell you, okay. so you realise that, like, we're not sure what any of these stories are. Yep. Except for the fact that she had an opera career and burned down a convent. We're clear on those points. They did occur. Okay. So, in the other version, she's also in the bar, just as a man, and he comes and sits down next to her and starts talking about how great his horse is. <laughs> And he's talking about how great this horse is for Asia, and she's like, I'm so bored. I just don't care about your horse. And she starts telling him how great her horse is to be like, well, if your horse is great, my horse is greater. <laughs> and eventually she's like, I'm so sick of this. And she gets up to leave, and he grabs her by the sleeve to stop her leaving and tears the fancy lace on her sleeve. And then she tips her wine all over him. Okay. And then they both draw their swords, and are like, we've been grievously insulted. And then they duel, and then she stabs him. Right. I don't think that made it better. No. <laughs> she always commits crime. <laughs> this is who she is as a person. So she stabs him, and then she's like, oh no, he's lying dead on the ground, and she picks him up and carries him back to his rooms. And nurses him back to her. And reveals her identity, and he's like, okay, and then she leaves. And then the next morning, he's like to his friends, no, you can't tend my wounds, she needs to tend my wounds, she was super attractive when she stabbed me, make her come back. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, oh my god, Dalbert, like, what are you doing? And he starts taking off his bandages and being like, nope, nope, I'm having none of this, make her come back. (laughs) Oh my god, dude. (laughs) I'm just picturing him just, like, pulling his intestines, like, no, I'll keep going. He was stabbed in the shoulder, for the record. (laughs) So it made them hard to get to, but he was determined. (laughs) He was determined. And they're like, fine, and they go and find her. And she turns up, and he's like, look, that was pretty great last night. And she's like, yeah, and then they date. So either way, they end up together after she stabs him. Okay. Is what happens here. Now that they've established the alpha. Yes. (laughs) Yes. They have... But he's in the army, and he has to go back to his regiment in the army. And so they part very tearfully, and that's the end of that for now. He will come back later. She returns to Paris, where there's enough, like, communication and knowledge of what's happening that they still want to try her for arson. Oh. Bad choice, Julie. Yep. So she goes to see the Count that she was the mistress of as a teenager, her father's boss. How old is she now? She's about 20. I have this written down. Okay. Okay, but where did you get that from? I could check, but I don't have written down where I got it from. <laughs> You're a bad historian. I'm a bad historian, in that there were no good sources on this, but I wanted to tell you this story anyway. So she goes to this guy and is like, look, you have a lot of like influence, and I'm going to be tried for arson and all this stuff, and they're going to burn me to death. Can you stop this? And he goes to the king, and he's like, look, remember that time that that man like burnt down a convent and kidnapped a nun and all that? And the king's like, yes. And he's like, look, that was my ex-girlfriend. And I'd really rather you didn't kill her. <laughs> and the king's like, honestly, this is hilarious. Like, okay, I'll pardon her. <laughs> Did this actually happen? Surely we'd have record of that if yeah. the king pardoned someone. She was pardoned. Okay. I don't know if the conversation went down like that. The source said that he was amused but would not confess it. So okay. I think that was more that they were like, what's a good explanation for why the king would have been fine with this? I mean, I would be amused. Yeah, if you were the king, you'd be entertained. So this is the point where her opera career continues. She joins the Paris Opera. She is very successful. She falls in love with a bunch of other women who are in the Paris Opera with her. Oh, good. One of them rejects her. Oh. It's very sad. I mean, that's probably a wise choice I would reject her. In case she stabbed you. Not so much that as the nun killing. In case she murdered a nun. But her eyes are so purple. Yeah, her eyes are purple, I mean. It's a historical fact. It's not a historical fact. (laughs) Her eyes are not purple. Nobody has purple eyes. Okay, I won't date her then. Don't date her. Yeah, so she falls in love with several other women in the opera company. How do we know that? Because 
<laughs> I don't know anything in here is very much like somebody wrote it down. The primary sources are in French. So I can't actually always help you here. I'm sorry, it's bad history. Okay. One of the women she falls in love with is called Martha Le Rochois. What is that? It's her name. Her name's Martha. Oh, okay. Is that okay? Yes. I know no French. Okay. Her name's Just Martha. Just bear with me. It's spelled with an A on the end. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. She has this ex whose name is Louis Dumeny. You are correct. It's another Louis. It is another Louis. And he's just a horrible person. That's the fourth Louis who's come up. Yeah, there are too many Louis in France. Okay. So she has this ex who's called Louis. And the story with Louis is that he used to work as a cook. And one day his, like, boss had the head of the opera over for dinner. And the head of the opera was like, I can hear someone singing, like, really well in your house. And he was like, nah, it's just my cook. It's fine. (laughs) And the head of the opera was like, no, he's great. Like, he's in my opera now. This is how it is. This also sounds fake, but I love it. (laughs) This is probably fake. But he was in the opera. We do know that. But he's also an asshole. Okay. So he's just horrible to all the women in the opera company. Oh, okay. And one day he's just, like, having a go at Julie and at Martha and at the other woman Julie's interested in and at that woman's sister. And she challenges him to a duel? Not yet. Sorry. (laughs) But, like, yeah, ultimately this ends in a jewel, because that's what she does. And she's just like, shut up, Louis. Like, this isn't over. And she walks out. And Louis is like, okay, sure. And Louis is heading home that night. And he's walking through, like, a dark alleyway. And there's, like, a dramatic figure standing at the end of the dark alleyway. Oh, wow. Is she wearing her cloak and her hat she's again? She's wearing her cloak and her hat. <laughs> according to her biographers. Who never lie, as we <laughs> Who know. Who have never lied. And didn't just want to make up a dramatic story. And she steps out dramatically into the light and challenges him to a jewel. And he's like, no. And so she gets her cane and beats him and steals his watch and his snuff box and just, like, disappears into the night. So he turns up at the opera the next day and he's quite beaten up. And everyone's like, Louis, what happened to you? Like, are you okay? And he's like, oh, I was, like, set upon by all these robbers and, like, they almost killed me, but I managed to fight them off and they only managed to take my watch and my snuff box. So, like, I was great. And she's just standing there in the doorway holding his watch and being like, ah, yes, all these robbers, Louis. All these robbers, it was me. So she's done more crime and yes. confessed to that crime, probably. Yeah, it's more crime. <laughs> but also this probably didn't happen. Yeah, nobody, like, chases her up for this crime because Louis's it, not a nice guy and it's minor. Or because it's fake. It's fake, yeah. I mean, I'd want it to be included in, like, the movie of her life, but it's fake. Yeah. yeah. The king's brother, who is also known for cross-dressing, incidentally. Okay. There we'll come back to him. We will come back to him. <laughs> I haven't looked into him much, but... That's apparently a thing about him. Throws a ball. A mosque ball. I was honestly imagining him, like, throwing a rubber ball. <laughs> no. I'm glad you clarified Has a party <laughs> at which people wear nice clothing and masks. This is going to be fake too, isn't it? And play catch. <laughs> and Julie goes to the party. Of course she does. She's the protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And she's dressed as a man. And everyone's super impressed by her. And she danced with all these women. And all the men are super jealous. And according to the quote from her biographer, Rogers, the one from the 1920s. Who never lies. Who never lies. Mm -hmm. She's dancing with one of the women and suggests an impossible alternative to dancing. To this woman. And then kisses her. And the woman screams. And three men who are rival suitors for this woman challenge Julie to a duel. She bests all three of them. I'm unclear on whether she kills them or just maims them. Does she do them one after the doesn't... other or at once? One after the other. But, okay. like, one after the other as in, like, one is done and the next one, like, comes to attack her. Like a movie where all the ninjas hover around the protagonist <laughs> except for one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like that. Cool. Yes. So she bests all three of them and may kill 
some slash all of them. We're not clear. But they bring her up in front of the king and it's like, look, she has just definitely been an illegal jewel. It happened at your brother's party. You were there. Like, we all know this happened. And she appealed to the king's brother for help. Because the king's brother is apparently just a nice guy. Who wants, I mean, not a nice guy. Apparently just wants her to be okay. Alright. Okay. And the king's brother is like, have you considered how these, like, laws are worded? They only technically apply to men. Oh, well. Whoops. And the king's like, I think they do only technically apply to men. Is this true? Like, can we get these laws? We probably could, yeah. Okay. Either way, she flees the country. Alright. So I don't think she's going to be tried for murder on her head, but she does have to leave the country after this. Okay. They don't, like, immediately, like, arrest her or anything, but she goes to Brussels. Okay. Fleeing the country is way less dramatic in Europe. Yeah, it is. Yeah, fleeing the country is, like, took a short walk in Europe. Yeah. 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 So she flees to Brussels. All right. Where she becomes the mistress of Maximilian II of Bavaria. Oh, okay. But that doesn't actually last very long. Why is he in Brussels? Where's Bavaria in, like... In the south of Germany. Germany. At the time, Germany owned that area, including, I think, Brussels. Okay. So he's in Brussels at the moment. So he's the elector of Bavaria. He's not, like, the king or anything. All right, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So she has becomes his mistress, but that doesn't last. One of the sources says it's because she was too furious a bedmate for him. (laughs) But most of them just seem to say he left her for another woman. Okay. Her whole life is a series of her finding these, like, really subby guys who can't, <laughs> like, can't, can't handle her. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. That's what happened. But, like, Dalbert was on board. Yeah, but he was also really subby. Yeah, yeah. he was just happy with it, so it worked. Yeah. yeah, so he leaves her. She's performing on stage, and she is supposed to, like, stab herself with the stage knife. Oh, no. And she swaps it out for a real knife. Oh, Julie. She's fine. Julie, chill. She's okay. But she does stab herself on stage. Oh, my God. Just... Decides to stab herself on stage and then executes that plan? That's what's happened? That's what's happened, yeah. Why? Because she was... he left her. Oh. Okay, I mean, alright. I guess. Yeah, like, that's what happens there. And he's like, well, this is a mess. And basically just gives her a lot of money and is like, just go and support yourself and, like, do your thing. Here's enough money as you need to live on. I'd be down for that. Just, like, yeah. go and be okay. <laughs> so she goes off. She travels back to France via Spain. She does a whole lot of things that we're not going to go into here. So she gets back to Paris. It's 1698. So she's in her late 20s. Yeah, I was going to say. Depending on when you decided she was born. It's not so big knowing whether she's 25 or 28, though, as it was knowing whether she was 14 or 17. Yeah. She returns to Paris. Martha, who was the, like, female lead in the opera company, has retired. So Julie becomes the female lead in the opera company. She has a successful career for a while. It's all pretty good. Then... Several of the sources say that she wrote to her husband at this point. I did wonder what had happened to him. And asked him to come home. Has he just still been chilling in the south of France for, like, the last decade? I mean, maybe he's just been having a nice time in the south of France and is like, wow, my wife is up to some things. Yeah, so she writes to her husband and asks him to come home. And apparently he does, and they live happily together until he dies in 1701. So three years after she returned to Paris. Suspicious. He was older than her. Okay. Not, like, significantly. Health was bad Health in was these bad. years. Yeah. All right. There's no suggestion that it was suspicious. Okay. I'll allow it, Julie. She has a successful career. She doesn't need to knock off her husband. But she might want to. I don't trust her. But she yeah. invited him home. To kill yeah, him. Yeah, to kill him. To kill him. Anyway, yes. So there's some more things I want to say about how people talk about that, but we'll finish the story and then we'll mm-hmm. go back and talk about that. She's also reunited with Delbert. Mm-hmm. 
when she returns to Paris. And with another man who she had, like, dated while she was in the opera. His name's Thévenin, and he's now, like, the male lead alongside her. And they have to do a bunch of, like, romantic roles together. But he's her ex, and they really don't get along. Oh, that's awkward. So it's awkward. Are they professional about it? Not super professional about it. Like, the whole of Paris knows this is happening. It's kind of a scandal. Everyone's like, they have to perform together, but they're so not into each other, and it's great and hilarious. So eventually he writes her this letter, which says, My dear Julie, everyone in this world has good points and bad points. I'm quite ready to admit that you handle a sword a great better than I do, and you must agree that I sing better than you do. (laughs) Well. That being so, you must recognise that if you only ran me through the breast three times, my voice, supposing I did not die, might be very seriously impaired, and I am bound to think of what my voice means to me, not to mention the bliss of gazing into your eyes when we play together and you don't fire off those ferocious retorts which rob your expression so completely of its sweetness. Okay. But then he goes, let us make peace. I come to you bound hand and foot in writing. Okay. In writing, however, for in an interview that might be dangerous. <laughs> okay. He went there too. He went there. Forgive me a jest for which I am unfeignedly contrite and be merciful. Okay. And she writes back and she's like, look, you're right. It's probably smart for you not to challenge me to a duel because I would win. So just, like, apologize in public for, like, all the bad stuff that's happened between us, which is just generally a bad relationship. There's no specific incidences mentioned. So he does, and that's pretty okay. I just liked the letter. That was why I wanted to read it to you. That's reasonable. It supports that every man she's ever met is subby as hell. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It does. (laughs) They all are. Yes, so she's also reunited with Delbert, and they successfully pick up their relationship where they left off. But unfortunately, he's very attractive, and a bunch of women are interested in him, including the Duchess of Luxembourg. And Julie's not on board with that at all. So one day while the Duchess is praying in church, Julie comes in and just, like, sidles into the pew beside her and, like, gets down to pray and is like, if you don't stay away from my boyfriend, I'll slit your throat. Julie. Did she stay there for the rest of the... <laughs> and then they, they just... just do mass together. And then leave. No, or did it, she leave? It says while she was praying, not while they were, like, in mass or anything. Oh, okay. So it's not like she's committed to just, like, an hour of awkwardness now. Okay. But then Delbert gets involved in a fatal duel and has to flee the country as well. He also goes to Bavaria (laughs) and marries the Elector of Bavaria's former mistress. So he has a type and so does Maximilian. Yeah. He and Maximilian have the same type. Yeah. That's the situation. And she's heartbroken and apparently swears off men for the rest of her life. Sure. Sure. Men, but not... Yeah, not women. She's about to have another girlfriend. Hey. Not women. She falls in love with a marquise, whose name is Marie. There aren't actually any sources on their relationship at all. It's one biographer, Rogers, who talks about this. But this marquise died in July in 1705, and that's a fact. We have those dates. And Julie retires from the stage in August of the same year, apparently because she's heartbroken over the death. She writes a letter to Delbert talking about how she wants to give up her life on the stage and she's going to live out the rest of her days in a convent. She's got a lot of nerves. <laughs> yeah, she does. He's super supportive and he writes back. He's like, you know, like, you were great as a performer, but if that's what you want to do, like, go right ahead. And she goes to a convent, she enters a convent, and she dies two years later. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Of what? She's in her mid-30s. She dies. We're going to discuss what she dies of in a moment. So what I wanted to talk about here is how her biographers talk about the end of her life and her death. So when she returns to Paris, from the point where she returns to Paris and she's reunited with her husband, a lot of the biographers put her on this sort of redemption arc. Oh, okay. One of them says she asks her husband to come home because she was in a fit of penitence for her misspent life. 
and then extends that to retiring from the opera and going to a convent. Okay. Rogers says when she goes to the convent that she tried to transfer her natural passions, he doesn't specify what her natural passions are, but they're queer, from earthly things to the divine bridegroom, is the words he uses. Is that Jesus? That's Jesus, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. People are so weird. People are super weird, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so she's transferred her natural passions to Jesus. To the bridegroom of heaven or whatever. To the divine bridegroom. Yeah. The divine bridegroom. Yeah. And Rogers says that what killed her... Is she Catholic? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this was during an era where they were like killing Protestants all over the place. Uh, yeah, I just had to figure out whether it was a killing Protestants year or a killing Catholics year. I should have said this when I was doing the scene setting at the start. It's a killing Protestants year. Okay. So Roger says that what killed her was she was destroyed by an inclination to do evil in the sight of God and a fixed intention not to, and that the struggle between her like newfound desire for repentance and to enter this convent and everything and her nature of being queer and killing people and doing all the things she does basically killed her. Can I see your medical degree, sir? (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, her biographers think it's because she just couldn't cope with trying to repent from her queerness. Um, I mean, trying to repent from your queerness seems like it would cause anguish. Is she trying to repent from it? Or is she just going to a convent? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. She's going. Maybe to... she is still just having a bunch of lesbian sex in a convent. Or maybe, maybe she's, she you know, done with that for now, but she's not like, it is awful that I was involved with women all those years. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Is that... I don't know. Okay. We don't know. We can only talk about what people have said about her. Yeah. Yeah, so what I thought was interesting was that a bunch of her biographers are determined for her to have this, like, repentance arc. Yeah. yeah. But they never denied she was queer. That reminds me of, like, really, you know... Most queer representation, including yeah. quite up to now, where queer people are allowed to exist as long as they suffer at the end. Yeah. Yes, exactly. They're always expected to have the redemption and death arc. Yeah, so long as it frames it as queer <laughs> people exist, but, you know, they suffer and are evil and whatnot. That's very much how it comes across. Yeah. Is she suffered and she was evil, but it's okay because she made up for it in the end and then she died but in a convent. What I have learned from this piece in general is that we should trust nothing that anyone in the 1930s ever said. That's correct. You should yeah. trust nothing that anyone in the 1930s ever said. Yeah, so a lot of these people who have written biographies of her, it comes from a, like, a music history. Well, queer history in the 1930s didn't so much exist. Yeah, like, there's one, Rogers, who I've mentioned several times, mm. was writing a book about women dressing as men. Or women doing, like, male things. Okay. Did you read any of his other stuff that wasn't specifically about her? Not really. Okay, like, fair, that's a bit beyond the scope. But I was just wondering if I had, like, similar Yeah, I wanted to get hold of the book and I didn't. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Was Rogers the one there who thought she would die of anguish from trying to reconcile her repentance with her queerness? Yeah, that's Rogers. He thought she died of anguish because it was just too hard to reconcile her repentance with her queerness. But, yeah, a lot of the people who write about her are writing either from a music history point of view... Or she's sort of connected with all this conversation about women doing sport. Okay. Oh, yeah. What with all the fencing? Yeah, what with all the fencing? Like, should women be doing sports? Is that too masculine? Like, those kind of things. Hmm. Rather than being writing about, like, not here is queer history, but here is, like, you know, a story about what happens when women love other women. Hmm. It just seems kind of incidental. Like, yeah, and this person was also into other women. It is also definitely a thing that you notice where people just don't take women's relationships with other women seriously. Yeah, like, it's Mm. definitely a thing where people think of men hooking up with other men as a gay relationship. And women hooking up with other women... Well, they can't really do anything with each other anyway. They don't have the emotional depth. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a thing. And yeah, that's why I thought it was interesting that they did, when she was in love with that woman who was in the convent, did talk about her being in love. Mm. They say they're lovers. They say she was infatuated with her. They mm. use, like... It's quite common to talk about, like... And to talk about close female friendships yeah, with that kind like, of language as well. About, like, yeah. like, people are so much afraid to talk about that as they are about the sex aspect. Yeah, nobody talks about the sex aspect beyond Rogers saying that thing about how she said the other woman she was dancing with, an impossible alternative to dancing. Is what he's saying um, it's impossible... For two women to have for sex. For two women to have sex. Yeah, yeah, that's what he's saying there. Oh, yeah. it was an impossible... Yeah, an impossible... Oh, yes. I thought she said, I've got a possible alternative to dancing. No, it was an impossible... She suggested an impossible alternative to dancing because oh. she was dressed as a man and... Oh, he was yeah. implying that she suggested this, but then it was not actually possible. That's much less fun. Yeah, no, it, it wasn't yeah. fun. I'm that was sorry. a fun comment, and it's ruined. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Rogers. <laughs> yeah, Rogers is not great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's from the 30s. He is from the 30s. Like, at least he acknowledged that queer things were happening, I guess, but he's not great. People are willing to say women are in love with women. They're not willing to consider it as real or as concrete or as deep as relationships with men in them. There's a mm-hmm. thing, and it was one of those terrible ancient Greek philosophers. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Might have been Aristotle, whose belief was that obviously a relationship between two men was the best relationship because oh, no, that's women. Plato. It was Plato. Plato. It was because women were just not capable of the same. This is in the symposium, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I was going to say, there's a thing that I'm reading about now for my Sappho thesis, talking about attitudes towards women-women relationships in, like, boarding schools in the 19th century, where mm, yes. it was quite common for girls to have their, like, special friend. And just I been... remember that from all the boarding school novels I read <laughs> when I was a child. Yeah, ultra close, and sometimes it would have been like, they are girlfriends, they are having sex. And it was kind of seen as fine, because they were just women, so, like... First of all, you know, like, what can they do with each other anyway? And it was kind of justified as being, like, almost as a preparation for a real relationship for marriage, which they get into after they left boarding school. I don't know how that lines up with this, where her final relationship that we see her have is with a woman. Yeah. Like, although she has relationships with women, and eventually they say she... Swears off men. Well, first she asks her husband to come home. And that kind of lines up with the idea of, okay, you've had your relationship with women, mm. but now she's kind of... Penitent. Penitent, yeah. yeah. Now she's kind of penitent, and she wants her husband to come back and have her, like, sensible grown-up relationship now. <laughs> yeah. But then once her husband dies, she has one more relationship with a woman. Yeah. So I don't know how that factors in. I mean, in. does Rogers say anything about that? About that relationship. Yeah. It does kind does of that... break his narrative. Of his, like, yeah, arc that he gives her yeah he talks about that relationship super briefly oh okay he basically says she was in love with this woman this woman died and she retired and moved to a convent okay that's basically all he says about that so i guess the convent is the so yeah i think the calling the husband home and the moving to the convent i think they want to focus on and only rogers talks about that relationship with Mm -hmm. that woman and he talks about it quite briefly yeah yeah, okay. they really want her to just be like, I'm sorry, I was never gay. I, was... I will have my grown-up relationships now with my husband and, and with the, the divine, divine bridegroom. bridegroom. <laughs> <laughs> On that note. On that note, thank you for listening to the story of Julie Daubigny. This has been Queer as Fact. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to look us up, you can find our other episodes at queerasfact.podbean.com. We're also on Tumblr as Queer as Fact, on Facebook as Queer as Fact, or on Twitter as Queer as Fact. And if you want to email us directly with any comments or thoughts or anyone you'd like to hear about, we're queerasfact at gmail.com. 
Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with our next episode on the 1st of May when Eli will be talking to us about 19th century diarist and lesbian Anne Lister. So hopefully we'll see you then. <laughs>